we are turning it up. <laughs> okay, guys, I've been having extreme technical difficulties today. And when I say extreme, I, I mean it. Um, internet, audio, visual, you name it, it's there. And I think it's because, you know, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics that I've been talking about for a long time. Even my friend Millie Weaver created a lot of content. Therefore, to, to actually uh, get people to understand how all of this came to be. Meaning, what is FISA? I mean, a lot of people have knowledge on what it is, but a lot of people don't understand the timing of it and how it was done. So now there are discussions live that we're going to watch together about uh, the reauthorization of FISA. Now, uh, as being one of the people that does have a FISA warrant on them, uh, how do you know, Tori? I just do. I can tell you that it's not so much that they're monitoring. Because, you know, let's go back to the thing of, oh, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, there's nothing to fear. Well, I have no choice. And there's a lot of other people around the nation that also have no choice. No choice in speaking up for themselves and saying, hey, I, I do not consent. Because the Fourth Amendment has been dead for a very long time. It has been uh, put down that, hey, we can't do these. We can't do that. There are laws protecting you. I can speak from experience. That is not true. That is not true. Now, I have to tell you that as I was kind of putting together all the software and updates that I needed to do in order to actually get online. I was listening to a song and the lyrics, I've become so numb, I can't feel you there, become so tired, so much more aware. I'm becoming this, all I want to do is be more like me and less like you. Linkin Park, right? Now, in our journey through life, we often find ourselves feeling disconnected and overwhelmed by the expectations and influence by others on us. At some point, we may become numb to our own desires, our own passions, losing touch with our true selves. But I can tell you it's never too late to reclaim your authenticity. As someone that, I, I remember in 2016 how I struggled to just have my identity. The IC had, you know, violated the basic covenant of just me being me. My, my name, my birth certificate, everything. They, when things are digital, they can be altered with the keystroke. And it was a battle that took me, I think I finally got my documentation sort of in order after three years. So finding your true self is understanding what your desires and wants are. And unfortunately, you know, in society, in society, we find ourselves being influenced by family, lovers, co-workers, you name it. And even the media, they tell us who we are and what we shall be or should be. We should be embracing the wariness that comes from conforming 
to societal norms and expectations. Everyone should have the right to uh, awaken newfound awareness within yourself. Recognize that you have the power to shape your own identity and to be the person you truly want to be. You don't have to be what the mold that was created for you says. We are water. Water is almost amorphous. It takes uh, the shape of a vessel that it is in. If it's a bowl, it's semicircular. If it's a square, it's cubicle, right? If it's a rhombus, it's rhombical, right? This is the way people are. They conform to the vessels that they're in when they don't have to. And so those words struck me because of letters that I've received, albite, I'm, I did read two letters as I sat by my computer system from 2021. But it was odd that these two people from actually two different areas of the planet were saying and feeling the same things of they don't know what to do. They don't know who they are. They're confused. You should be embracing your individuality as yourself. Love what you want and how you are. And recognize what actually sets you apart and makes you different from the person next to you. It could be just something simple like your hair color or your gait, you know, when you walk or the way you use your hands or your hands look, which is superficial things. But when it gets to the crux of it, Everyone has a superpower, whether that be, you know, a skill like knitting or welding or the ability to handle anxiety, the ability to see solutions where others don't, or the ability to furnish a room without having to take measurements, just eyeballing it. Everyone should be celebrating their strengths, their quirks, and their passions, and let them be your compass to live a life that's authentic and true to your own values. Shed that numbness, the tiredness that holds you back and become more aware, more alive and more true to who you are or wish to be. And you know, at this point, I have to say, I understand that feeling of feeling, uh, you know, deflated and stagnant. It's extremely overwhelming. I'm actually struggling with that right now. I mean, uh, someone will say, well, you, you know, a lot has happened in, in my personal life. My, my, my daughter got married. Uh, you know, she, she found a home, made an offer, right? My other one is in boot camp. I just got her address yesterday and I'm spamming the crap out of her with sandbox, right? You know, there's a lot going on, but I feel stagnant. I feel deflated. I feel disorganized. I feel uh, that, that, that my compass is spinning as if I'm flying over the Bermuda Triangle. But this usually happens when it seems that we're on the brink of a war. We have the ability to overcome evil, of course, because we're creative and evil cannot create. And we can overcome the confusion that is manufactured in order to keep us disoriented. Confusion plagues us. It's times like this that it's natural for our subconscious to prepare for challenges ahead, inducing a state of stagnant behavior. Procrastination is increased when 
there are processes in your mind working. It's almost as if your mind is hibernating for what's to come. It's almost like a call to action, a reminder that we have to rise above the fears and limitations. And while war may be looming, it's important to remember that we have the power to shape our destiny because tomorrow is written by today. So the present is the most important. So as you look at these uncertain times, uh, find solace in your faith. Draw strength from your values. Be Christ-like. Remember that love, compassion, and forgiveness are powerful tools in overcoming anything that's evil. And by embracing these virtues, there's a ripple effect of positivity and unity. And though for many, the road may seem difficult, optimism is something that can shape tomorrow. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, even people that have near-death experience, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. So in the darkness, there's always a light. And that is always the one that navigates someone through the darkness. And truth can light the path for you to walk on. Because that truth is providing transparency. So don't be discouraged by the confusion that surrounds us, but rather... Let it fuel your determination to seek truth and justice. Because we're not alone. Reach out to the people in your community. Text them and say, hey, let, let's, let's go get a coffee. I'm feeling stagnant. I feel like we should be doing something. Maybe we could get together and uh, brainstorm a little bit. I feel like I don't want to do anything. I want to curl up in a hole and play video games or get so high that I don't know what my name is or if I'm going or coming. I want to drink and go dancing and not remember the next day. This is the feeling of many. And that feeling will be sustained until next week. And it's almost as if it's a, I don't want to say gluttonous, but I want to say uh, an overwhelming fear of access. Is that the right way to say it? Overwhelming fear of access. Uh, it's extremely disheartening to see so many running in both directions at the same time. Because then it's only a portion of you that can focus on it. So don't be deflated or stagnant. Instead... Take time for yourself and have faith and know that through your faith, any challenge is overcome. I mean, if he's with us, who can be against us, right? Now, as we're speaking today of Section 702, I've outlined numerous times what overcollection is and how they got things done through overcollection, and how important it is to understand what it actually means. So you can revisit by going to Tori Said. I talked about this years ago, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite important because, because it's going to be very pertinent. See, one might say, well, President Trump could have, you know, done this and that, and 
you know, said something and stopped it, well, why, why would he? Pfizer goes both ways. It's not just one direction of targeting. Now, let's uh, revisit some old clips. This is from six years ago when Dan Coates outlined Section 702 surveillance laws. And if you remember, I wrote about how Judge Collier kind of spanked Obama's intelligence community and fired Carlin. Carlin was fired for the 702 over collections. And that same judge in September of 2016 that said, no, 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 Lynch. No, 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 Brennan. No, 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 Clapper. Still signed off on the FISA warrant in October based on the no, 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 no. She got them in September. Obviously, Judge Collier is no longer on the bench. It took a while. And I've said this so many times before. If our legislative branch is corrupt, we can overcome that. If our executive branch is corrupt, we can overcome that. If both legislative and executive are corrupt, we can still overcome it. But if our judicial branch is poisoned, it's game over. And I wholeheartedly understand how many people are disheartened because we are observing a judicial branch that is not adhering to the law, that is not adhering to the foundations of this nation. And that indeed is terrifying because they've made it political. Now here's a short clip from six years ago. Said I want to stress three things as a backdrop to everything else that my colleagues and I are presenting today. First, as I mentioned at the outset, Collection Under 702 has produced and continues to produce intelligence that is vital to protect the nation against international terrorism and other threats. Secondly, there are important legal limitations found within Section 702 of FISA, and let me no uh, note four of these legal limitations. First, the authorities granted under Section 702 may only be used to target foreign persons located abroad for foreign intelligence purposes. Secondly, they may not be used to target U.S. persons anywhere in the world. Third, they may not be used to target anyone located inside the United States regardless of their nationality. And fourth, they may not be used to target a foreign person when the intent is to acquire the communications of a U.S. person with whom a foreign person is communicating. This is generally referred to as the prohibition against reverse targeting. The third item I would like to stress is that we are committed to ensuring that the intelligence community's use of 702 is consistent with the law and the protection of the privacy and civil liberties of Americans. And to that end, in the nearly 10 years since Congress enacted the FAA, there have been no instances of intentional violations of Section 702. I'd like to repeat that. 
In the nearly 10 years since Congress enacted the amendments to the Freedom Act, uh, the act that established uh, FISA, there have been no instances of intentional violations of Section 702. With those points as a backdrop, now let me turn to a discussion of why it became necessary for Congress to enact Section 702. I do this so that the American public can hopefully better understand the basis for this important law. The Foreign Intelligence and Surveillance Act was first passed in 1978, creating a way for the federal government to obtain court orders for electronic surveillance of suspected spies, terrorists, and foreign diplomats located inside the United States. <clears throat> When originally enacting FISA, Congress decided that collection against targets located abroad would generally be outside of their regime, FISA's regime. That decision reflected the fact that people in the United States are protected by the Fourth Amendment, while foreigners located abroad are not. Foreigners located abroad are not. That's interesting. Now, as you saw, sitting next to Dan Coates was Admiral Rogers. Let's hear from him, what he has to say before we hear this hearing together. You've uh, had three plus distinguished years now at NSA, building on an extraordinarily distinguished career that takes us, uh, the two of us, back uh, probably a good 15 years as, as I've watched you uh, progress and, and uh, lead different organizations from Pacific Command to the, the J-2, the intelligence element at the Department of Defense, and then at NSA. And uh, thank you for your service. Um, his, his biography is obviously available on, online, and so we'd like to really just jump in on, on the questions and issues of, of the day that we're here for. Uh, give the audience, if you will, sort of a, a, a baseline of what 702 is sure. before we kind of jump into then some of the issues. Glad to, and if I could, not only is today's Chicago and a great day, because the <laughs> flying again over Wrigley Field, but also for those of you who might be veterans of the United States Navy, October the 13th is the 242nd birthday. So, yes. to my fellow veterans in the, in the Naval Service, happy birthday. Um, now, with respect to, so how would I describe 702? So, 702 first, how did you come up with this number? It is the section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, it's section 702, that specifically provides the legal and statutory authority for us to collect overseas against non-US persons for a specific set of purposes. <clears throat> that law has been in place for just under 10 years, first passed by the Congress in 2008, renewed again by the Congress in 2008. And now we find ourselves five years later, the statutory authority expires December the 31st, 2017. And so we're now in a legislative... Your on? mic, no, you're not on. Okay. Yeah. It's that high tech. That's it. Yeah. Do you hear me now? Okay. Apologize. <laughs> um, and so now... We are in another statutory review process. Congress is considering the legislation, which again is currently slated to expire, or sunset is the phrase we use on December the 31st, 2017. As you heard from the Director of National Intelligence, we are arguing that there is a compelling case 
to continue the reauthorization of this statutory authority, which has been in place for almost a decade. And that, that decade-long use of this authority has generated tremendous value for our nation, and we'll talk about in the course of our discussion some of that value, that in the course of that almost 10 years of using this statutory authority, we're very proud of the track record we have of our legal compliance with the law, of the fact that we have been a forthright and honest organization, that when, when it makes mistakes, it publicly acknowledges those mistakes, it goes to the court, it goes to the Director of National Intelligence, it informs the Attorney General, and it informs our oversight committee in the Congress. I think that's something that's very important. I also very much welcome the discussion, because I am the first to acknowledge that it is important for us as a nation that we have a very public, forthright, and direct dialogue about how are we trying to ensure that our government has the tools that it needs to help ensure the security of our nation, while at the same time, it does so within a very specified legal regime, and that, that legal regime includes explicit protections for the privacy and the observance of the rights of our citizens. It's not one or the other. We are committed to doing both. And so I very much welcome opportunities like this to sit down and have a discussion about what it is, what it isn't, why is it that we feel so strongly that renewing this again is in our nation's best interest, and I look forward to that discussion. Well, thank you for, for that introduction that builds on uh, Director Coates's uh, remarks at, at the opening. Uh, the, he used phrases like, saves American lives, uh, again, quoting uh, General Alexander, uh, from from several years ago, and the uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, placed the the percentage of intelligence that's collected at this at over 25 percent, which we understand at a classified level it could be with greater precision on what that is. But when you weigh the importance of this program in terms of that phrase of keeping Americans safe and the dependency of giving the decision maker uh, that ability to, uh, to, to prevent a terrorist attack or a transfer of uh, weapons of mass destruction material or whatever sort of threat that may come from it. Can you talk a bit about the importance of the program from a standpoint of what NSA does on a daily basis by the men and women at Fort Meade? So there's two measures before we get into that, I want to share something. I want to share something that I put together before uh, we actually figured out how FISA was being abused. It was only in 2020 when people, uh, when it was actually Rick Rennell, right, that released files indicating unmasking and uh, using Section 702 over collections. Right. If you remember, uh, you have to ask yourself, who signed the FISA warrant to unmask? And how did they unmask people through FISA, uh, you know, over collections, I guess, 702 over collections, uh, before they were awarded the ability? Who signed the Flynn FISA? Who did it? Who tapped? You know, the seventh floor of the FBI is pretty 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 nasty but i want to show you this article that i had written and 
you know, kind of went a little bit wayside. So in 2018, before anyone knew, I had a Russiagate part three, unmasking methods and point of contact. And here I say that the obvious point of contact, who it is, is the angriest one of them all. And that would be Teft. Taft was the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador in Moscow. I mean, he got caught having a, a Russian spy, I guess. I would say Ukrainian, but in at the embassy. And of course, the Russians are going to have spies within the embassy because we usually hire locals to facilitate, you know, dual citizens and uh, the local government. But here I had made it clear that it was him before November 30th, before the Kislyak call was actually set up, before it was even done, this guy had unmasked General Flynn. And I urge all of you to go and find the drop of documents with names and dates that Rick Grinnell had put out. And that, my friend, is how you catch them. Because we already knew the point is, where is the evidence for it? People should read this. People should totally read this. And if you see here, I talk about Russian election meddling of USAID and Russia that was ousted. Bosnia's election meddling, right? Macedonia, election meddling. Well, we have Albania, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes I write articles, kind of like I did where I was outing Senator Hoven for doing business like the Bidens. But at the same time, dropping information like Hunter Biden emails. So I made it clear as to how they did it, why they did it, right? And it kind of just went wayside. And, and the reason is, is because there's operations in place. Operations to distract and confuse the public, to be unaware of it. And, 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 and you know what? It has to get really stupid. I mean, it's not even stupid enough for people that are walking zombies to wake up. It's got to get really, really stupid. And see, in this simple article right here, there's a lot. Tells you about USAID, tells you about where, who, what, everything. Tells you how all of this happened. And also shows you how his children are working for us and are getting paid by us. And look at his daughter. 80% higher is her salary than most people at the Department of State. And she helped with the whole Albanian stuff. But this is atrocious. The nepotism, the clickiness, all of that. You know, it's never what they tell you. It's always what they don't tell you. And as you see here, John Kerry. Oh. Who was in the hot seat yesterday? Wait a minute. He doesn't even know who works for him because they don't. It's a script. A big script. And it's got to get real stupid. And it's being fine tweaked to be stupid. You know, FISA 702 overcollection refers to a situation, right, where the U.S. government, under the authority of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, unintentionally, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, collects more information than it is authorized during its surveillance activities. 
This happens when the government surveillance programs inadvertently gather data, fuck out of here, that is unrelated to the intended target or exceeds the scope of the unauthorized <laughs> collection. And it can happen, it has happened due to technical errors because they use algorithms, uh, misinterpretation of targeting instructions and other factors, right? I may say, I want to monitor Mary Beth because she's talking to someone in China. And that Chinese person is linked to military at the CCP. So I need to monitor Mary Beth. But as I say, monitor Mary Beth, it takes all the Mary Beths that are in her family and collects the information of all of them. And that could be because the algorithm made a mistake. In this case, where we're discussing the 702 over collections, that were being conducted in 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and even 18. It wasn't an algorithm issue. I've talked about it extensively. This is how they beefed up their renewal for the FISA warrants. Carter Page was ideal for that, showing you that they added more information and that made no sense further to that. They were given extensions constantly by Judge Collier to fine tune their algorithm that was erroneous. I've gone over this in 2018 and 2019 like nobody's business. And it's important we understand why 702, Section 702 was renewed. And there's a reason for that. Again, FISA goes both ways. And I want you guys to hear the Deputy Attorney General right now, Lisa Monaco, and what she had to say in the importance of FISA 702. Just take a listen. First, let me agree wholeheartedly with General Nakasone. 702 is an absolutely indispensable national security tool. Um, I have seen the value of it in um, every job that I have had, and you mentioned uh, my prior roles in national security. I see it um, when I review the President's Daily Brief, a significant portion uh, of that vital intelligence uh, that we get is derived from 702. It gives us insights into cyber threats, help uh, helps us prevent ransomware attacks from foreign actors. But when it comes to this conflict and what Russia is doing in Ukraine, it has proved vitally important. Indeed, 702 has helped us uncover gruesome atrocities committed by Russia in Ukraine, including the murder of non-combatants, the forced relocation of children from Russian-occupied Ukraine to Russia, and the detention of refugees fleeing violence by Russian personnel. All of that um, we were able to see thanks to 702. And that information and other information helped, has helped us as a country and as a national security community galvanize accountability efforts regarding Ukraine by allowing us to confidently and accurately speak with the international community about Russian atrocities. So, uh, Senator, I think one of the most important things that this committee and this Congress can do to help us push back against Russian aggression is reauthorize 702. Russian aggression, I see. Well, let's see what Rep Himes, the Democrat says, 
you know, just a few weeks ago, because this is what they're talking about today. And then you have to think to yourself, well, it was one thing renewed under a Trump administration, both ways and all. How do you feel about it happening now? And you know, the frustration that I have is one that was verbalized just a couple of days ago. I was um, walking somewhere with two people in Cleveland and we saw the FBI hanging out on the street. So we flagged them down, you know, hey, the, like on the corner, we were like, hey dude, you know, you've got your whole bulletproof vest and FBI logo, like what's going on? You wanna come raid me? I have Hunter Biden's laptop. <laughs> so the guy said, well, we're here and we're watching. We're like, you're in the wrong place. And so me and one of the people I work with, said, you know, you, you should go over there. There's laundering of money, DOD money, federal tax dollars. There's illegal shipments, possibly, on tankers that are leaving the ports in Ohio to go overseas. There are things being brought with ships, XYZ, like this. There are banks that are representing themselves as banks that abide by federal U.S. laws that deny U.S. citizens from accessing uh, features that this bank may offer. There are GoFundMes, and I'll show you one, where they're raising money to, and I quote, Dorota's Orphans is organizing a fundraiser her name is Dorota Ochocinska. More than 6,000 orphans have been evacuated from the war zone in Ukraine. Dorota oversees a summer camp near their home in Poland, where they house and provide more than 300 Ukraine orphans. With so many people seeking refuge in Poland, supplies are limited. Knowing colder weather is on the way, we have to collect and ship hats, coats, socks, shoes, blankets, medical supplies, and we need your money. And we will continue to do that as we're able to, but the immediate need is to raise funds to pay for food. So a lot of the kids are being snatched and they're being taken over to Poland. And then there's the Ukraine Humanitarian Fund that GoFundMe themselves has organized, and they've almost reached their $3 million threshold. It's quite interesting when you run into law enforcement that tells you how great these tools are and how much information they actually have and what they do with it. And I believe that this interview for five, FISA Section 702 reauthorization will shed a lot of light. You, first of all, you have suggested that there are, that any changes should be made. Um, are you confident that there can be some sort of agreement between a Republican House and a Democratic Senate on how to move forward that this perhaps could be reauthorized by the end of the year? Well, when you ask the question that way, it's a very easy question to answer. Um, you know, Mike and I every day uh, for much of the day see the information that we get that keeps Americans safe as a result of 702 
authorities. And that uh, it helps us interdict fentanyl. It helps us understand what the Chinese are doing, what the North Korea. So the answer to the question you asked is that 702 must be reauthorized. I mean, were we to just put that tool down and say, we're not going to use it, you might as well, you know, I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, bombastic here, but you might as well say, let's get rid of a couple of aircraft carriers, right? I mean, that would be profoundly foolish of the Congress to do. So it must be reauthorized. The only question is, um, what are the reforms uh, that are necessary to get a majority in the House and 60 votes in the Senate for that to happen? I don't know that we know the answer to that question yet. I can tell you that the reforms live on a spectrum somewhere between what the FBI has already done, which has been really quite meaningful, is enough. I would tell you that some people are probably there. And then some people are very much in the camp of, you know, the FBI shouldn't do U.S. person queries. Um, uh, Mike and I are starting the process now of, you know, educating our respective members, uh, broadly speaking, across the uh, the House of Representatives on the authorities, on the history here, on the reforms that have been made. So it'll be a little while before we know where you get a majority on that spectrum of proposed reforms. And Ranking Member Himes. Question yet. I can tell you that the reforms live on a spectrum somewhere between what the FBI has already done, which has been really quite meaningful, is enough. I would tell you that some people are probably there. And then some people are very much in the camp of, you know, the FBI shouldn't do U.S. person queries. Um, uh, Mike and I are starting the process now of, you know, educating our respective members, uh, broadly speaking, across the, uh, the House of Representatives on the authorities, on the history here, on the reforms that have been made. So it'll be a little while before we know where you get a majority on that spectrum of proposed reforms. Guide through all the different legal mumbo jumbo, I've gathered a panel of experts. To my left is Jeff Kossoff, a system professor in the United States Naval Academy from Cyber Science Department. Uh, Nima Singh Guliani from American Civil Liberties Union in DC, their legislative council, and Arthur Reiser, the National Security and Justice Policy Director for the Street Institute. So let's jump right in. I'm gonna start with Jeff. Jeff, today we're talking about section 702. So do you mind explaining what it is and how do agencies collect our data under this authority? Sure, well, I'll try to be brief on this, but it's actually a fairly complex web of statutes. And to really understand Section 702, you have to understand the surveillance laws in general. So you start off with basic criminal surveillance statutes like the Wiretap Act and the Stored Communications Act, which generally require a showing of probable cause approved by a neutral magistrate, uh, probable cause of a crime having been committed to obtain a wiretap order or uh, basically under the Stored Communications Act a warrant now, although there's some discussion and debate about that, but that's for another panel that we could talk about later. But um, so, but that involves sort of domestic criminal surveillance. For foreign intelligence surveillance, the statutory framework for that was first developed in 1978 when Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was grown out of a concern that the government might be using its foreign intelligence surveillance powers to spy on people domestically. So it created a number of authorities, uh, most prominently Title I, which requires the government, uh, if it's conducting foreign intelligence surveillance within the United States, to obtain a warrant from a new court called the FISA Court, which is basically a nationwide court of judges who sit on district courts and who are appointed by the Chief Justice. And they, to obtain this warrant, they have to show probable cause that the target is either a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, and that the facility, so the phone number, for example, that's being targeted is likely used by that person. So that's how it went for 
years and years. And then in the 90s and the 2000s, as there was more fiber optic communications being built, and there was more sort of uh, communications uh, that went through US companies that actually involved people who were located outside of the United States and were non-US persons. So internet appeared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, there became an issue that the government was still to conduct surveillance on people who were outside of the United States, not US persons. The government was still having to ob obtain these individualized FISA warrants. So in 2008, uh, there was a predecessor statute, but the current statute uh, is the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. And section 702 involves the targeting of non-US persons, so not US citizens, not re permanent residents, uh, who are located outside of the United States. And the big distinction between 702 and previous authorities is that 702 does not require an individualized warrant. However, it does require a number of steps for the government to take before it can conduct surveillance. Okay, so we'll go back to that, but it, this sounds pretty simple to me in the sense that it's targeted foreigners. Why should Americans care about this NEMA? Yeah, I mean, I think before I dive into why we should care, I think it's important to understand the scope of 702. I mean, we're not talking about a couple of dozen emails here, here or there or a handful of phone calls. I'm looking at the numbers. How many individuals does the government target under Section 702? Um, the most recent transparency report says over 106,000. So that a means year. a year, right? So that's not just those individuals, but you can extrapolate, you know, let's assume each of those people talks to 100 or 1,000 people. The number of people on, under surveillance globally under Section 702 is enormous. In terms of actual number of communications and transactions being collected, that's also enormous. So from a recent FISA court opinion, um, we know that annually, internet, transaction, internet transactions alone were over 250 million. Now, let's put that in the context. This is an information that's collected and deleted immediately. In most cases, the default um, period that's kept is five years. So it's not a stretch of the imagination, and it's not an exaggeration to say that at any given time, the government may actually have a billion communications or transactions in its custody that it collected under Section 702. And so you hear from the government when you, know, you raise concerns about the number, you raise concerns about the privacy and civil liberties implications of Section 702. You hear, I think, two, two statements that aren't entirely true. The first you hear is, look, this is really about foreigners. This isn't about Americans. And the second thing you hear is that, look, this all happens with appropriate court process. Um, and those are real misstatements for a couple of reasons. The first is, if you look at who can be targeted under Section 702, it allows people who have no relation to national security, no relation to a terrorism threat, no relation to criminal activity of every, any kind to be surveillance targets. Um, under the terms of the statute, they can target anybody who has information, who has foreign intelligence information. But that can include information about foreign affairs. So let's say you're a journalist and you report on drones. Let's say you're an international businessman and you follow world news. Um, under the text of the statute itself, you could be a target under Section 702. And what we see in court filings is the government readily admitting that not all 702 targets are international terrorists. So this isn't an authority that's focused on national security and terrorism. It's an authority that touches other issues. I think the second issue you hear a lot about is this is about foreigners. Well, that's not entirely true either. At the time the government actually collects information under Section 702, 
they know that they're going to pick up the communications of Americans and Americans who are in communications with these targets. And they know, and their procedures intend to exploit that information. So once they have 702 information, the government says, look, we can search through this information and we can use it for purposes that have nothing to do with terrorism and nothing to do with national security. We can use it for domestic purposes, criminal purposes. Um, the FBI routinely searches through databases that contain Section 702 information as part of its investigative processes. And so I think it's really important to um, understand you know, the concerns stemming from Section 702, not just because of the size of the program, but because it affects Americans and it extends far beyond terrorism purposes. So when I was in Moscow for Christmas break and I emailed you about the surveillance work we're doing, mm -hmm. that probably got swept up, maybe? There is a chance? It's very possible, and that's one of the problems, right? If you were um, not a U.S. citizen or green card holder and you were overseas and talking about surveillance, you know, presumably could be considered information about foreign affairs, you could be a target. Our conversation could be swept up, and let's say, for example, I was under investigation for some reason. The government could search through their 702 database, which would include information about yours and mine conversations, and get that conversation and use it in a criminal matter that had nothing to do with why they collected the information to begin with. And so what you see is, I think, a lot of defense of 702 under the grounds of national security, under the grounds that it targets foreigners, but really the authority is about much more than that. So Section 702 has been recently in the news a lot because of uh, tweets from the administration about some collection and wiretapping that happened um, during the transition period between the previous and current administration. Arthur, um, how does Section 702 um, fit within this picture and this story? Well, President Donald Trump tweeted and said that he was intercepted um, via wiretap. He didn't go in whether it was a Title III, which is a, a criminal wiretap, which, as the good professor stated, it, not only you need probable cause, I, I used to say you need probable cause on steroids because you needed to be able to show there was no other type of investigative tool that would work. And a lot of people don't realize that you actually need the Deputy Assistant Attorney General to sign off on every single wiretap in the United States. Pretty high threshold. I want to call bullshit on that because I had a wiretap on me. And I know for a fact that the Deputy Attorney General of the United States did not authorize that. So that's actually bullshit. The laws are one thing. The way they execute is another. So Section 702, over collections. I, as I said, talked about this again and again and again and again. But before we delve and watch the hearing, where we can skip to the good part, I want you guys to see how the DNI of Real Haynes testified in front of the Senate in regards to worldwide threats. And I want you to just listen to this and maybe let it percolate just for a bit as you listen to the hearings about the FISA renewal as to how this plays into it. Myself for five minutes. Director Haynes, I, I do recognize the importance of uh, the FISA Section 702 authorization. As you noted, 59% or so of the uh, information given to the President daily is sourced to 702. However, uh, the Americans do have a constitutional right um, to not be searched without a warrant. So 
Uh, despite the efforts of Congress, there have been reported examples of the intelligence community using 702 to target U.S. citizens. That's not supposed to happen. So your own office's annual transparency report estimates that in 2021, the FBI conducted approximately 3.4 million queries of Section 702 acquired data on U.S. citizens. Uh, clearly, existing safeguards are not enough. I have a series of uh, quick questions I'd like to ask uh, for your response, quick responses. Director Wood, imposing a warrant requirement before the government searches Section 702 acquired data for Americans' communications hamper your intelligence gathering against malign foreign actors? Thank you, Senator. So a, a few things. One is uh, 702 is an authority that is uh, only permits the targeting of foreign persons yes. outside of the United States. Yes. So, um, so just to, to be clear, uh, if a U.S. person were to be targeted under 702, that would be unlawful, yes. and that is something that's not compliant. When you talk about the 3.4 million searches that the FBI did, that's not where they're targeting U.S. persons. So what what is happening there is there's about it's a less than four percent of uh, the data that is brought in from FISA that the FBI is able to search, and um, and when they're doing searches. Often what they're looking for is connections that allow um, them to identify victims of, for example, cyber attacks or other things like that. So they're searching through an existing database to see if there's a connection that ultimately would allow them to make that connection. And we can, we can talk yeah. about this more in, in uh, private in the closed session to give you greater detail. But for example, within the, the 3.4 million, 1.9 million was related to a particular cyber attack. So it just gives you a sense of the difference. And that's not something that, um, uh, you know, that is necessarily, um, in other words, it's not something that's subject to a warrant, nor would it be subject to a warrant per se. But as a general matter, if we had to seek a warrant for every uh, target of a foreign person uh, abroad, um, there's no question it would have an enormous impact on our work and make it much more challenging. Oh, yes, yeah. uh, but with 3.4 million inquiries based on data collected through an appropriate 702 inquiry of foreign um, citizens in outside of the U.S., I think there's there are concerns. So my next question is: What, uh, what, what statutory limits? and uh, judicial oversight to prevent the collection and the use of Americans' communications and other Fourth Amendment-protected information hamper your intelligence-gathering efforts against malign foreign actors. And, and make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. If you're asking us what are, the, what are additional reforms that we would be willing to mm -hmm. make, we are absolutely open to considering reforms. The Attorney General and myself wrote a letter uh, to Congress letting you know that. Um, that is something we would be happy to discuss. We, uh, you know, have, um, I mentioned that we've engaged in a number of reforms in the last few years to try to promote additional oversight, and we'd be happy to talk about Good. whether or not those should be. I, I am running out of time, so uh, there are concerns about um, limiting the permissible pool of Section 702 targets and also perhaps removing barriers to existing judicial review. So, yes, I look forward to working with you. You did mention in your testimony that um, you have the foreign malign 
Infra influence center, and you noted that China, Russia, and Iran may be doing things that will interfere with our uh, upcoming elections. Can can you uh, just give us a like an example of the kinds of tools they would use, and then how do you alert our elections officials to this kind of interference? Yeah, absolutely. And we actually, we do um, and did re relatively recently an intelligence community assessment on election influence and interference. There is um, a version of it that is uh, unclassified that we can, uh, you know, that we've made public as well. Um, the kinds of things that we look at are, uh, in fact, efforts by um, adversaries, including Russia, obviously, um, engaging in information campaigns or in other types of disinformation uh, work to try to undermine, um, for example, candidates or uh, positions or things along those lines. And we absolutely do share that information, both with the Department of Homeland Security, with FBI, with, um, and they tend to be the ones to make the connection directly to the election officials within the United States. And there's a, a fairly robust, uh, you know, sort of network that has been developed in order to provide this kind of information. Thank you. Oh, General, thank you very much for your 39 years of service. I did have some questions for you. Yeah, we don't want to hear her questions. Now, so that is what they're saying, that they can only target people overseas. So before we take a quick break, so that way we can get on to this live discussion where they conduct a hearing about it, it's almost as if they're just having these hearings, you know, to raise money. I, and I'll tell you why. So the Secret Service says, well, we don't know where this cocaine came from. It's a blind spot, right? Well, hold on a second. If the White House, which is the most surveilled building in the world, right? If there's war happening, you hide your president. If there's war happening, you hide your vice president. How many movies have you seen? Because they represent the nation, you know? And it's kind of like a video game <laughs> strategy. You take out the leader. The country kneels. So how in the world did that actually occur? How in the world did they come out with that statement? That is embarrassing. That indicates that we are a weak nation because even in, in a closed, highly secure place, you don't know where it came from. Here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you. So Secret Service is then going to be asked by Congress, hey, you need to come in because we need to find about this blind spot. What do you mean blind spot? I'm not understanding. How are there blind spots? Chopping block is ahead of the Secret Service. Bring this bitch in. Let's talk. Oh, And then suddenly there's a cover up. Oh, it gets uncovered by all those people in Congress that need to be reelected in 2024. And therefore, like, look, America, we're on your side. Give us money, and the majority of them are on your side, and they want to show you that they're on your side. And then there's a couple of rhinos that will attach, of course, right? And suddenly, through communication, it'll be holy shit. The Biden administration colluded with Secret Service to conceal Kamala's coke. And then it's like Biden by then is so far gone and, you know, can't tie a shoe. He's on a CPAP now. You know, it's just going to escalate. At that point, when that comes out, suddenly it's like, whoosh, take them both out, come in. And that is how it's going to go. Newsom, Biden, up, 
That way McCarthy doesn't take any control. And this is just a battle of, you know, Game of Thrones right now. This is all Game of Thrones. Very nicely. I mean, you would think that Martin is writing this, you know? I feel like I'm the Ice King sometimes. Just come in and fuck shit up and, and then just walk away behind my ice wall. For real. Like, this is so stupid right now. The fact that Secret Service has tainted their stellar record in history. They have tainted their record in history of being tight-knit, strong, and on point. And I mean, it was tainted also with whoever selected those people installing the cameras to allow them to then report that, oh, look, Trump has all these files. And it's like, you know, I'm going to tell you this straight out. Obama has documents, too. You should see what he has in Chicago. <laughs> you know, maybe the FBI should raid Tina Chen. That would be interesting. But having said that, this is where we are at stupidity. That every issue is another campaign fundraising discussion. Now, I wanted to get into how Turkey's not getting the F-35s. We talked about that a couple of years ago. They're only getting F-16s. Uh, Turkey's like, yeah, Norway, uh, yeah, you, Sweden, and all of you Nordics can get into NATO because then maybe the EU will let us in. EU will never let Turkey in. EU wants to destroy Turkey. Then we have Iran, comedy, right? He's talking sense. It's... Insane. And then we have people talking about the missing money from the Pentagon, and it's like, hey, it's here in Cleveland. But anyway, that's a story for another time. Now, on that note, I think it's important uh, that we take a quick musical interlude and start listening to this live stream because it is getting super interesting. At first, it's all like word salads and posturing and I mean, Biggs is really trying, but Nadler, you know, he's, I think he has his big boy pants on today and he seems to be more in tune with what he wants to say. So let's just enjoy this show for a second and take a listen to this musical interlude. See you all in just a few minutes.
Before we start, I just wanted to say, you know, I am extremely grateful for the people of Ohio that joined me in a crusade <laughs> last year to demonstrate through going through the motions of how corrupt a red state, alleged red state, is, but also demonstrating how difficult it is to get on a ballot if you're not part of the team, how difficult it is to actually get yourself placed on the ballot if you're not one of their own. And it's important for people to understand that on the exit of Frank LaRose, who is a WEF marionette who observed the Ukrainian elections in 2019 when Zelensky was selected, on his way out, there is an issue that Ohio will be voting on on August 8th. And it is to change the way people can make changes to their constitution. They want to amend the constitution right now, this is the vote, to increase the voter approval threshold for constitutional amendments to 60%. They would require citizen-initiated constitutional amendment campaigns to collect signatures from each of the state's 88 counties, an increase from half, which is 44. They would eliminate the cure period of 10 days for campaigns to gather additional signatures for citizen-initiated constitutional amendments when the original submission didn't have enough. Now, that's what happens if you vote yes. If you vote no, it'll maintain with the simple majority. We'll continue to require campaigns to collect signature from each of at least 44 counties and continue to allow campaigns to have 10 additional days to collect signature when their original submissions contain too few valid signatures. Now, one might say by increasing the threshold, we are able to uh, lessen the frequency of constitutional amendments, which actually don't really happen that fast. In fact, um, Constitution of Ohio uh, doesn't actually get amended as much. And this would mean that the only people that would be able to propose new amendments in legislation are those funded by big money. Because even for myself, when I campaigned, we got signatures from almost all counties, almost. And that costs money and it takes time and effort. You have to travel to those places. You have to know those places. 
And it could be that, you know, some counties that are, don't, don't really give a shit and no one is there to do anything. And on top of that, it clearly indicates that the control is going to be in the hands of the few when you change things. The 10 additional days is to get more signatures, you know, just in case they eliminate some. You have to really think hard as to why these changes are being made now. While many would say, well, that sounds like a benefit. I don't need my constitution really amended. People need to start looking, well, how many amendments have been done? That's the thing. How many? Not many. Not many. The most recent um, constitutional amendment that was proposed was in 2015. And it was to amend the constitution that that creates monopolies, oligopolies, or cartels. And, and that received 51.33% of the vote. That's pretty interesting, right? Pretty interesting. So it's important that people understand that it's not that easy to pass a constitutional amendment anyway, but people should have the right to be able to do it without the backing of big corporate money. So it's... um. You know, while they say it's to elevating the standards to qualify for an initiated constitutional amendment and to pass a constitutional amendment. Elevating the 1%, the club. Keep that in mind when you're voting and what they're bringing because they're coming in hard and it's not to help you, it's to help themselves. Now let's get to and uh, enjoy the posturing and the pearls of wisdom that you will see. ...instances where the applications were inaccurate, unsupported, or omitted information. The FBI was unable to even locate the Woods file uh, and in, uh, let's see. For the, yeah, for the other four applications. So the 29 couldn't even find four Woods files. And found over 400 instances of noncompliance with Woods procedures across the 29 applications sample. In February 2020, Director Ray testified before this committee and told the American people that they should not, quote, lose any sleep over the vast majority of FISA applications. Former Director Comey labeled FISA a top-tier FBI program. But upon further review by the Inspector General, it was revealed that the FBI failed to recognize the, system, the significant risk posed by the systemic noncompliance with the Woods procedures, which provide the factual justification for FISA applications. In May of this year, Special Counsel John Durham released his report on the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation. That report not only backed up Inspector General Horowitz's findings, but also found that political and confirmation bias by FBI employees led the FBI to lie to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and illegally, illegally spy on the Trump campaign for an entire year. In the recent investigation of Special Counsel Durham, he found that some FISA applications ultimately arose from sources close with the Kremlin who were known to be targets of ongoing U.S. investigations related to fraud and espionage. Durham concluded that the FBI ran with the first justification it found to spy on the Trump campaign, despite clear indications of foreign unreliable sourcing. These reports detail only a fraction of the government's abuses of the FISA program. At the end of this year, Section 702 of FISA will expire. 
Section 702 does not require a warrant or any other justification to an independent arbiter, such as a judge or magistrate, before the government agent can query databases about an individual who is a U.S. citizen. Reports in recent years have exposed the government's and specifically the FBI's abuse of this program. A law designed to provide tools to collect foreign intelligence and prevent terrorist attacks has been warped into a domestic spy tool that has been used millions of times over the past three years to target Americans. In 2021, the FBI queried the communications of over 3.3 million, communications more than 3.3 million times and of more than 1 million discrete U.S. citizens. In 2022, the FBI conducted thousands of U.S. person queries. A recent FISA court opinion revealed that the FBI conducted more than 278,000 improper searches of U.S. persons' communications in 2022, including those of people who attended protests, uh, 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign. And in another instance, the FBI looked at the communications uh, of, those very, of, of donors. Think about that. 19,000 people on a donor list are being queried and looked at by the FBI simply because they did donate. As Congress considers whether to reauthorize this program, this committee will be at the forefront and has the opportunity to shed a light on the broad issue of warrantless mass surveillance in violation of the Fourth Amendment. We must consider whether FISA and Section 702 can be reformed or if it's beyond repair. I, for one, see no reason for members on either side of the aisle to trust the FBI with this tool. The FBI has used FISA specifically Section 702 to spy on Americans to violate the Fourth Amendment and conduct warrantless, warrantless searches. FISA 702, uh, let's see here, let's clear, it's clear that the government is using communications acquired through this program to conduct backdoor searches, which I think we'll hear more about today. Most of this is done without a warrant. Section 702 information acquired without a warrant can later be used by the FBI in criminal prosecutions unrelated to foreign intelligence or national security. The FBI has misused privileged spying powers to conduct rogue surveillance on innocent Americans, and we cannot allow that to continue. I have called for serious reforms or full repeal of FISA for years. I think it is built on a dubious constitutional foundation. The FBI has used this tool designed for foreign surveillance to spy on congressional donors, January 6 protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, and even elected officials, including one of our own congressional colleagues. We must, end those warrantless we must end warrantless surveillance of Americans and hold accountable any federal official who violates the civil liberties of Americans. Make no mistake, actors within the FBI and other similar federal agencies who continue to conduct unlawful and unconstitutional surveillance of Americans should be brought to justice. Some argue that, there's, that, there are no more that these are no more invasive than a stop-and-frisk Terry stop, but at least in a stop-and-frisk, you have personal contact and actual communication between the target and the government agent. I suggest that even a 702 query is more akin to a wiretap, which requires a warrant before executing uh, that, that query or that wiretap. The FBI, claim, the FBI claim now is that it's okay because it has put in place new protocols and new software. But unlike a warrant, all of the FBI measures rest ultimately on post-action review, and it's not by an independent arbiter. I continue to believe that we will uh, be able to work across the aisle with, with our colleagues because so many of us agree on this issue, 
and I extend my hand to them and look forward to working with Ranking Member Jackson Lee and other members of this committee as we confront this serious issue. Again, I thank those uh, on the panel for being here today. I thank our witnesses and those in the audience, and I yield back and now recognize the Ranking Member, Ms. Jackson Lee, for an opening statement. Mr. Chairman, thank you so very much. I am uh, very pleased to uh, join you in convening today's hearing on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, as I indicated during part one of our examination of FISA, this subcommittee has a critical role to play in the reauthorization of Section 702, which expires in less than six months. Let me acknowledge all of my colleagues that are present here today, uh, in particular, uh, Ranking Member Nadler. The two of us may be the only ones present that were here when the Judiciary Committee single-handedly had to put a pause on the Patriot Act. Uh, and begin to uh, address uh, some of our concerns uh, after 9-11. Even in that dastardly, devastating loss of life, it was important uh, to recognize that we are a nation of laws and the Constitution uh, and to be able to respond at that time. Uh, I know that the uh, thousands of agents across America um, have as their general premise uh, to investigate crimes uh, and as FBI agents and to follow the law and to protect the American people. That I will acknowledge. We had the opportunity to be briefed uh, just a few days ago by members of the FBI, and I will acknowledge that there is a uh, critical understanding of the challenges that we are now facing. But Congress is the arbiter of the Constitution, uh, and the responder to the American people and the protector of the American people's constitutional rights. With that in mind, this vital set of provisions under Section 702, which has been the subject of much scrutiny and criticism, permits the federal government to collect foreign intelligence targeting non-U.S. persons outside the United States without obtaining individualized orders. It is, of course, um, a unique provision. While I expect that today's witnesses will discuss many of those criticisms, I hope that we are able to have a constructive conversation about the ways in which Congress can make uh, certain that U.S. persons are not ensnared in the web of international surveillance. I will look forward to their insight because we will act. Congress must act. Beginning with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which first passed more than 30 years ago, to address abuses in collecting and using foreign and domestic intelligence, the government must show not only that there is probable cause to believe the target of intelligence surveillance is an agent of a foreign power, but also that foreign intelligence gathering is the primary purpose of the collection. Following the 9-11 attack and significant advancements in technology, the foreign intelligence gathering needs of the country shifted considerably, yet were often stymied by the need to obtain individual FISA court orders for overseas surveillance which requires substantial manpower as presented to Congress by law enforcement. In response, Congress passed the Pfizer Amendment Act, FAA of 2008, that authorized the federal government to collect massive amounts of information through the targeted surveillance of foreign persons, reasonably believed to be outside of the United States without a warrant. Current Congress has granted agencies within the U.S. intelligence community this authority through Pfizer and Section 702 so that they may gather foreign intelligence information to seek out, pursue, and thwart threats from foreign terrorists and nation states that mean to harm us. 
Together, these statutes have been vital to the protection and safety of Americans. However, as we consider reauthorization of Section 702, we must be certain that we are not conceding very clear the constitutional rights of Americans in the name of national security. That is what makes America unique. That is what is the grounding of the constitutional pillars that are uh, our definition. The FAA requires intelligence agencies to design targeting procedures to limit the scope of collection before the government acts and minimization procedures to limit the use of information about U.S. persons after the government incidentally collects that information. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court reviews these procedures for legal sufficiency. Although the statute includes protections for U.S. persons whose information is inadvertently collected but not constitutionally subject to targeting, we know that the NSA and DOJ have repeatedly reported the unauthorized use of backdoor searches of the 702 database. And as a release from the Brennan Center pointed out, internal oversight measures hailed as robust failed to prevent flagrant abuses, including 133 warrantless searches aimed at Black Lives Matter protesters and 19,000 searches for communications to a single congressional campaign. We're also faced with considering what guardrails are appropriate to prevent federal agencies from evading the legal protections of Americans' privacy by purchasing data from data brokers. These and other problems with Pfizer and Section 702 have led some of my colleagues, particularly Chairman Jordan and Chairman Biggs, uh, and all of us to take a position adverse to reauthorization of Section 702 in its current form. Since this is the second hearing of this subject, hope that my colleagues are attaining sufficient information to help us reach a compromise position to move uh, this reauthorization forward uh, and to uh, acknowledge that all of us have criticisms, but I think what is broken needs to be fixed. Given the threats facing our nation from the ruling Chinese Communist Party that represents both the leading and most consequential threat to U.S. national security and leadership globally, according to Director of National Intelligence Averill Haynes, to terrorist groups such as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hezbollah that continue to plot att attacks against the United States, it is critical that we take appropriate action before the expiration of government authorities under this provision and simply make it right, make it correct, make it constitutionally infrastructured, if you will, to be able to function for what it is needed and to protect the American people. That is why I will reiterate my uh, thoughts from part one of this conversation. We worked together to pass USA Freedom Act in 2015, demonstrating that we're capable of building consensus around our common values, dedicated to privacy, transparency, and protection from unreasonable searches and seizures. Let us do so again together on behalf of the American people, reshaping these critical tools so that they serve the government's needs, also protecting the privacy of every American. I look forward to the testimony of our witnesses and yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I thank the ranking member, uh, Jackson Lee. And now the ranking member of the entire committee, um, Mr. Nadler from New York. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for continuing this committee's important work on Pfizer reauthorization and on the overall que question of the warrantless acquisition 
of U.S. person information. At our last hearing, we heard from government watchdogs who described the FBI's ongoing compliance issues with Section 702. Today, I hope to hear from the witnesses about the impact of these violations, even when they are unintentional, and about what changes this panel believes would make inappropriate queries of the 702 database all but impossible. As I said at the beginning of our last hearing on this topic, I have never voted to reauthorize Section 702. I am deeply uncomfortable, as we all should be, with the legal fiction that it is permissible for the government to search our most private communications without a warrant simply because they were aiming for non-U.S. persons overseas. I understand, however, that this authority has become increasingly important to our national security. And so I will entertain reauthorizing Section 702, provided that we meet this basic privacy challenge head on. Although Section 702 authorizes only the targeting of non-U.S. persons who are outside the United States, we know that massive amounts of U.S. person data are swept up under this programmatic surveillance. We also know from what reporting is available that the government has a lot of this data, that much of it could not have been obtained without a warrant had they tried to collect it directly. As the reauthorization debate has begun in earnest, the FBI has assured us that they only receive a small percentage of the total information collection under Section 702. We cannot discuss precise numbers in this setting, but nobody should take comfort in the fact that the FBI only has access to some portion of a staggeringly large volume of information, including vast amounts of data about U.S. persons. The FBI has also demonstrated, after two decades of tinkering with the system, that improved training and the reconfiguration of their database has reduced the number of improper queries of Section 702 information by roughly 90% this past year alone. That is no small feat, and I wonder where this debate would be today if the Department of Justice and the FBI had taken their noncompliance problems seriously years ago. But again, it is difficult to find comfort in the percentages. If two years ago there were 2 million improper queries, and last year there were only 200,000 improper queries, we are still left to contend with 200,000 unsuccessful attempts to sidestep our constitutional protections. In recent briefing, the FBI and the Department of Justice told our members and our staff that one cause of noncompliance was, was a simple misunderstanding, in quotes, of the legal standards under Section 702. That was their term, misunderstanding. I have no doubt that FBI personnel and field officers across the country may have had trouble interpreting the law, and I am pleased that, this, that the administration has corrected course, but I find it deeply troubling that the FBI would blame its field officers for a problem that clearly originated from its leadership. Let's tell the story as it actually happened. Congress last reauthorized Section 702 in 2017. Over the course of the next few years, DOJ and the FBI diverged on how to interpret the legal standards for searching the Section 702 database. The FBI told us at the time that it was perfectly appropriate for the Bureau to take a looser view of the statute, an approach that ultimately gave them more access to our private communications. This was no misunderstanding. It was a deliberately maximalist interpretation of the law. The scathing FISA court opinion that has been released since our last hearing, the one that showed the FBI querying the database for particular campaign donors, George Floyd protesters and January 6th suspects is a direct rebuke of that interpretation. 
I understand that the FBI has since corrected course. I am deeply gratified that the leadership of the Department of Justice took control and decided to adhere to the limits Congress put in place. But this so-called misunderstanding really gets to the heart of the matter. Chairman Biggs and I agree on very little. But here is one place we agree. Whatever, whatever we think of the last administration, whatever th we think of the current administration, we cannot count on the next administration to get this right. We have to build a Section 702 regime that fully respects our privacy, no matter who is in charge. Not 90% of our privacy, all of our privacy. The changes the FBI has made to this program in the run-up to reauthorization are welcome, but they are insufficient. I look forward to hearing from our panel today what, about what else we must do to correct this program before it can be reauthorized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Thank, thank you, uh, Mr. Nadler. Without objection, all other opening statements will be included in the record. We will now introduce today's witnesses. I'm very excited to uh, welcome this august panel. Um, Professor Jonathan Turley. Professor Turley is the J.B. and Maurice C. Shapiro Professor of Public Interest Law at the George Washington University Law School. He's a nationally recognized legal scholar who has written extensively in areas ranging from constitutional law to legal theory. Thanks for being here, Professor. Mr. Phil Kiko is a principal at Williams and Jensen PLLC. He is a former chief administrative officer of the House of Representatives and has served in a number of positions with members of Congress and committees, including this committee, the Judiciary Committee. Thanks for being here, Mr. Kiko. Mr. Gene Shire is a partner at Share Jeff, Share Jaff LLP and serves as the general counsel at the Project for Privacy and Surveillance Accountability. The Project for Privacy and Surveillance Accountability advocates for greater protection for Americans' privacy and civil liberties in government surveillance programs. Thank you for being here, Mr. Chair. Uh, Ms. Ms. Elizabeth Goitain, am I close? Okay, Goitain, okay. Ms. Goitain is the Senior Director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. Her work focuses on presidential emergency powers, government surveillance, and government secrecy. We welcome each of you here today. We thank you for appearing. Uh, I, I think we're all very excited to hear what you have to say, particularly potential remedies and reformation recommendations. We will begin by swearing you in. If each of you would please rise and raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you are about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? Let the record reflect the witnesses answered and witnesses have all answered in the affirmative. Thank you. Please be seated. And please know that your written testimony will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, we ask that you summarize your, your testimony in five minutes. I will begin tapping just, just before that five minutes so you are aware that, that your time is about to expire and the floor will open up and your chair will disappear. No, that, that really won't happen. I can't believe I said that. I, I'm not filtering. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to filter. Professor Turley, we recognize you for your five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Biggs. Thank you, Ranking Member Jackson Lee, and thank you, Ranking Member Nadler, and all the members of the subcommittee. It's an honor to speak to you today uh, about FISA and the reauthorization of 702. Today's hearing will raise, admittedly, difficult legal questions. Uh, and there are some questions, however, that should not be in doubt. There's no question 
that the FBI and other agencies have continued to defy federal law and abuse their powers under FISA. There's no question that both the courts and Congress have been misled in the use of FISA in prior years. There's no question that the scope of the harm to privacy and constitutional rights has been immense. The only question is what you're going to do about it. And I think it is a significant moment in today's deeply divided politics that not only are the witnesses on this panel uh, largely united uh, in our views, but it appears that many of the members of both parties are as well. Quite frankly, the FBI is back. Uh, once again, at a reauthorization, as Ranking Member Nadler mentioned, saying that you can trust us. And for those of us who have been critical of FISA, it is an exercise of really breathtaking audacity, uh, including, as Congressman Nadler uh, stated, the continued reference to misunderstanding laws after years of litigation and discussion of those laws. If we reauthorize Section 702 without significant changes, then we have become a nation of chumps. It's not like this is being held from us as facts. We have documented evidence of massive violations of the privacy of US citizens. So this is not something that is being hidden. It's in plain sight. Now, obviously, one of the possible responses from Congress can be simply to let this provision sunset. You just go back to the way it was in 2008. That would convey an important deterrent for agencies that if you abuse it, you lose it. And this would certainly warrant that type of response. But assuming that you want to add guardrails, there are a number of things that I've suggested in my written testimony. My colleagues have recommended others and theirs. These include ending backdoor searches, strengthening minimization standards, barring parallel construction, uh, dealing with commercially available information as a circumvention of con constitutional protections, and the creation of special advocates in the FISA uh, uh, process. You know, when Ronald Reagan uh, famously talked about uh, the Russian proverb, trust but verify, uh, we actually have our own such proverb and, or viewpoint, and that was contained in Federalist 51. When James Madison said, you can never have government where you trust on the good motivations of the government itself. It, this was part of his discussion that if all men were angels, no government would be necessary. And he said that the key to good government was to oblige the government to control itself. FISA fulfills Madison's worst expectations. That trust has been repeatedly violated by the FBI and other agencies. And so once again, I ask, what are you going to do about it? Now, government power is a lot like gas in a closed space. If you expand the space, the government will expand evenly to fill it. If you allow a crack, the gas will escape. Section 702 wasn't a crack. It was a wide open door that allowed for uh, these types of violations to occur, uh, this pretense of incidental uh, uh, violations of privacy. I won't get into the specific details right now, but I'll be happy to talk about them. 
I do want to know one of the suggestions that I make is for the creation of special advocates. As was mentioned earlier, this uh, Congress did create amicus as part of FISA. That system was commendable, but it has been an utter failure in my view. We need the creation of a different type of advocate within the FISA system. Just as there are advocates to protect our security in FISA, there should be advocates protecting our privacy in FISA. And we need to create a firm, structured role for that. In many ways, the Vatican had the devil's advocate that often had to uh, um, present evidence against the wishes of the Vatican. We have to have the same process in FISA. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today, and I'd be happy to answer questions. Thank you, Professor Turley. Uh, Mr. Kiko, you were recognized for your, your five minutes. Chairman Biggs, Ranking Men Member Jackson Lee, and uh, Nadler, it's an honor to testify before this committee. I was asked to share my experience in successfully assisting in crafting complex anti-terrorism legislation, in particular the USA Patriot Act and its progeny, and to provide some perspective associated with the issue of 702 expiring at the end of this year. A little background. Following widespread wiretapping and surveillance abuses, Congress originally enacted FISA to make sure that government agencies must secure authorization to gather foreign intelligence. In addition, FISA created two new Article III courts. The most significant later reforms in FISA was the enactment of the Patriot Act as a result of the attacks. The pressure on this committee to do something after the 9-11 attacks was enormous. However, the committee came together to consider all the options. Formal hearings were held to discuss new anti-terrorism authorities. We had a lot of unofficial late-night sessions, committee members sitting at the dais here. The committee sought input from everyone. The door was wide open to craft the Patriot Act. But one of this committee's top bipartisan priorities was to ensure that we protected not only our national security, but our cherished civil liberties. And that core principle has been the hot point of contention in every FISA debate. The Patriot Act provided enhanced investigative tools to prevent the future terrorist activities and the prevention of preliminary acts and crimes to further such. It amended FISA by creating 16 new authorities. And looking back, one of the best things Congress did was to incorporate the sunset provisions. The idea of sunsetting these authorities was not popular at the time, particularly with the Justice Department. But the Patriot Act would be enacted with its extraordinary new powers and safeguards to civil liberties. Only the sunset provisions were there to preserve Congress's power to change the law. Since 9-11, FISA has been amended several times, including the addition of 702 in 2008, and it created uh, procedures to collect foreign intelligence when communications travel through the United States communication infrastructure. It was designed to target non-US persons reasonably believed to be located overseas. And it was viewed as a uh, vital tool to protect Americans, including our men and women in uniform. 
But have the law enforcement agencies and intelligence communities earned our trust to retain those expansive authorities? I would say the answer, I think, is no. My written statement goes into the problems in detail, and this committee knows more than ever the myriad of ways in which the failures have occurred. I should add, this frustration is not a partisan one. Since the leak of the Snowden documents, the public disclosure of abuses that resulted in the passage of the USA Freedom Act, we have continued to witness serious escalating concerns surrounding misconduct and abuse of civil liberties. The public record is replete with abuse. The public trust has deteriorated. Obviously, something needs to be done. Traditional oversight is not good enough because it always looks backward after the damage has been done. When an agency abuses statutory construct, whether intentionally or through malfeasance or through negligence, there needs to be consequences for bad behavior. The lack of any consequences for these abuse, abuses compounds the lack of trust. Let's make the system more accountable. As for oversight, how can there be effective oversight when so few clearances of congressional staff there is? Probably, you know, of all the people that are doing oversight in the House side, I'd, I'd say more than, there's not more than 15 or 20 people that have the clearances that, that, that really go. So, so how are you going to do effective oversight? And trust me, they understand that in the agencies. So 702 expires this year. The important provisions should not be lost. If for no other reason than FISA was enacted to constrain. However, there's been abuse. If Congress decides to let it expire, which is their prerogative, then figure out a way to legislate a different mechanism to replace it. I stand ready to assist in any way I can. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Kiko. And now um, I recognize Ms. Go Ms. Goitin for your five minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Biggs, Ranking Member Jackson Lee, and Ranking Member Nadler, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for this opportunity to testify on such an important topic. Section 702 was passed to enhance the government's powers to conduct surveillance of foreign terrorists. Today, according to the government, it's used to combat a range of foreign threats, including cybersecurity attacks, fentanyl trafficking, and espionage act. Of course, if that were all Section 702 were used for, we wouldn't be here today. The reason this authority is so controversial and the reason it should not be reauthorized without far-reaching reforms is that it's become a rich source of warrantless access to Americans' communications. How did this happen? Section 702 authorizes warrantless surveillance and therefore it can only be targeted at foreigners abroad. But the surveillance inevitably sweeps in Americans' communications because Americans communicate with foreigners. If the government's intent were to spy on those Americans, it would have to get a warrant in a criminal investigation or a FISA Title I order in a foreign intelligence investigation. So to prevent the government from using Section 702 as an end run around these constitutional and statutory requirements, Congress did two things. It required the government to minimize the retention and use of Americans' information. And it required the government to certify that it is not using Section 702 as a backdoor to spy on Americans. These protections have proven to be meaningless. 
All of the agencies that receive Section 702 data conduct warrantless electronic searches of that data for the express purpose of finding and retrieving Americans' phone calls, emails, and text messages. The FBI conducted 200,000 of these backdoor searches in 2022 alone. This staggering number leaves no doubt that Section 702 has become a domestic spying tool, one that allows the government to circumvent the protections of the Fourth Amendment and FISA. Now, Congress and the FISA court have attempted to put some limits on this practice, but agencies have routinely violated those limits. In 2018, Congress enacted a warrant requirement that applies to a very small fraction of the FBI's backdoor searches. This requirement has been triggered roughly 100 times. By the government's own admission, the FBI has never once complied with it. The FBI has also engaged in widespread violations of its own rules for backdoor searches, according to the FISA court. These violations include searches for the communications of more than 130 racial justice protesters, thousands of people suspected of involvement in the January 6 attack on the US Capitol, 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign, and multiple US government officials, journalists, and political commentators. The starting point for any conversation about reauthorizing Section 702 must be a requirement that the government obtain a Title I order or a warrant before searching Section 702 data for Americans' communications. But that's only the beginning, because if Congress stops there, the government could exploit gaps in the law to obtain much of the same information, not just without a warrant, but without any legislative limits or judicial oversight. For instance, generally speaking, FISA only applies when the government collects information inside the United States or from US companies. This geographical boundary is a holdover from a time when domestic surveillance usually meant surveillance of Americans and overseas surveillance usually meant surveillance of foreigners. But in the digital age, Americans' communications are as likely to be rooted and stored overseas as they are in the United States. Overseas surveillance can therefore have just as great an impact on Americans' privacy as domestic surveillance. Yet for the most part, the government writes its own rules for overseas collection. And those rules expressly permit bulk collection and backdoor searches. There are also gaps in FISA's exclusivity provision that allow the government to treat certain parts of FISA as optional. For instance, FISA appears to require the government to obtain a court order to collect American cell phone location information. But the government can and does obtain access to vast databases of this highly sensitive information by purchasing it from data brokers. There is little point in closing the backdoor search loophole if the government can simply pivot to other loopholes in the law. Meaningful reform of Section 702 will require a comprehensive approach to reining in warrantless surveillance of Americans. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. And now we'll go to you, Mr. Scher, for your five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Biggs and Ranking Member Jackson Lee and Ranking Member Nadler and, and other members of the subcommittee. It's an honor to appear before you uh, today on behalf of our civil, civil Liberties Organization, the Project for Privacy and Surveillance Accountability, or PPSA, 
Uh, we work with groups across the spectrum to address government surveillance abuses and encroachments on the Fourth Amendment. And I'm here to urge you to treat the expiration of FISA Section 702 as a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Congress to reassert its rightful constitutional prerogative to broadly determine when, why, and how Americans can be surveilled by their own government. And to that end, with our allies, we have urged Congress to enact comprehensive reforms that implement five key principles designed to protect Americans' privacy without sacrificing our security. Uh, today, I'll focus on just three of those principles and how they can help you bring all government surveillance of Americans with an appropriate statutory guardrails and oversight. And by the way, although I represent Carter Page and many other clients, I'm appearing today only on behalf of PPSA. Uh, the first principle that we've urged uh, flows from the consent of the governed concept articulated in the Declaration of Independence and then embodied in Article I of our Constitution. And it is that American citizens should not be subject to surveillance by their own government without their implied consent in the form of a statute duly enacted by their representatives here in Congress. Americans shouldn't be subject to surveillance merely at the whim of the FBI or any other executive official, none of whom has authority to consent to surveillance on our behalf. And yet, under administrations headed by both parties, the CIA, for example, has exploited technology-created gaps in FISA's reach to conduct a bulk collection program that sweeps up much of American sensitive data. Similarly, as we've heard, the FBI routinely conducts backdoor searches of information collected under Section 702. And as we've also heard, the government routinely buys our most personal information from third-party data brokers. And without a clear statute governing all surveillance activities, Congress will be doomed to forever playing whack-a-mole with the surveillance agencies. The second principle is that, as Ms. Goitin said, any government access to Americans' communications or other private data should be undertaken only pursuant to a probable cause judicial order. Uh, such a warrant or other order provides at least some assurance that the government has a specific concern that justifies the surveillance. Uh, a probable cause order requirement, moreover, should not apply just to direct surveillance, but also to more indirect forms of surveillance, like searching for information about Americans in a database of purchased information or in the massive trove of data compiled under Section 702. On that point, you've already heard many examples of overreaching backdoor Section 702 searches, and I won't repeat them. But the potential for abuse of purchase data, including geolocation data and other Fourth Amendment protected information, is, if anything, even greater. But currently, neither of these indirect forms of surveillance is meaningfully constrained by statutory guardrails or judicial oversight. They should all be subject to a probable cause uh, order requirement similar to the requirement for surveillance under FISA Title I. Uh, the third principle is that any surveillance of Americans should be subject to adequate mechanisms in both Congress and the judiciary to ensure accountability for compliance with governing law. And that's important because, as we know, the current system is rife with violations. Uh, the chairman mentioned earlier uh, the, inspector, the DOJ Inspector General report that found so many violations of the, uh, of, of the requirements applicable to applications to the FISA court. 
And those problems highlight the need for an enhanced system of having civil liberties experts, or amici, advise the FISA court in sensitive investigation uh, along the lines of the Lee Leahy Amendment that a couple of years ago passed the Senate overwhelmingly. Uh, more generally, any re revamp of FISA must go well beyond ensuring that Congress has the tools to adequately oversee surveillance agency. Um, that revamp must also include enhanced penalties for violating statutory guardrails, for lying to courts, for refusing to comply with statutory reporting requirements, and other meaningful consequences for misbehavior or stonewalling. As the people's agents, you can stop this game of surveillance whack-a-mole. You can do that by asserting your constitutional authority against an executive branch that under both parties is too often overbearing and against the judicial branch that too often gives the executive an undeserved benefit of the doubt. Please don't let this rare opportunity slip away. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And now recognize the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Gates, for his five minutes. Ms. Goitin, many of my constituents will watch this hearing and they'll say, well, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, I'm not a foreigner. Why should that bother me? What would you say? Americans' communications are swept up in enormous volumes, so enormous that the government won't tell us how big it is because it would be a very awkward number for the government to disclose. I suspect that's the real reason. Um, and those communications are available to FBI agents without a warrant or a court order of any kind. And uh, you talked about these backdoor searches, and that's been an intense focus of the committee. Uh, could you help define that for folks so they understand the, the risk there? Sure, what a backdoor search is, is an electronic query of data obtained under Section 702. So the communications are obtained, they are placed into data systems um, at the NSA and then shared with the FBI, the National Counterterrorism S uh, Center, and the CIA. Um, and then agents can run electronic queries of those data systems using identifiers associated with Americans, so using an American's email address, for example. They can plug that in, and that will return any communications that were obtained under Section 702 that have an American on one end of them. And it almost feels like there's a digital file out there about millions of Americans, uh, and, and I'm sort of wondering how, and we've tried to get straight answers, uh, from folks who, who work in the government about this question, but what we've learned is it's upwards of 10,000 people who can conduct some of these backdoor searches. Have any of your studies um, evaluated the breadth of individuals who can engage in this violation of our civil liberties? No, we don't know the number, but I think... Isn't that scary? Shouldn't we? I mean, it seems like something we should know. Uh, how many people can do backdoor searches into information that was not collected pursuant to any probable cause or a warrant? Yeah, it would be a good thing to know. And one of the reasons why I think we should be curious about it is because uh, the government has told the FISA court that one of the reasons for all of these violations we've seen is that FBI agents didn't understand the standard for those searches. And that standard is that the search has to be reasonably likely to obtain foreign intelligence or evidence of a crime. Well, and that doesn't sound like rocket science to me. And that standard has been in place for 15 years. But they, they break it. Well, I mean, I just read an order from the foreign intelligence, the, the FISC, the court. And the court said, well, you weren't just using these searches and queries to get legitimate law enforcement information. At times, people at the FBI were searching themselves, searching their ex-lovers, searching their neighbors uh, in this system. 
Um, and, and so it, it seems as though they're not really, there's not a standard that's ad adhered to. It's adhered to often in the breach. There were 278,000 violations of that standard in 2021. It, I mean, if, if you've got 278,000 violations of the standard, the, as you've said, the breach is the standard in a lot of ways. So we have this tactical question coming up. We have FISA that is set to expire, and I believe we should let it. I believe it does, it, it, the, the standard of violation of breach is so pervasive that the patient is not savable, that we have to design something totally different outside of 702. And then I have other colleagues who are, who are like-minded in my desire to protect civil liberties, but who suggest tactically that the best approach is to try to insert strong warrant requirements. This is my seventh year in, in Congress. Mr. Kiko, I certainly don't have your experience, but I want to draw on it because I, I want to get your advice. I've gone down this road with the Cheneyistas and, and, and others who um, bring us to the precipice of reform, and then at the last moment, it seems as though the civil libertarians uh, rarely prevail over those who, who purport to be defending national security, no matter how many violations of our liberties occur. And so would you advise uh, a reform effort or an expiration uh, strategy, and, and why? Well, I would. That's a very tough question, and I know that's why you ask it. And I would, I can actually see my preference would be some kind of reform effort with teeth and accountability because there hasn't been any teeth and there hasn't been any accountability in, in the oversight that's been conducted. We're always at the end of the system. They say they're going to do something. It never gets done. Four years later, we find out there's massive violations. Everybody comes, well, we're gonna do it this time. But there's no accountability among the people that are breaking the law. There's no accountability among the administration. It doesn't matter. There's nothing. Yeah, it sounds like there need to be penalties. Thank you for your testimony. I yield back. Thank you. Chair recognizes uh, the gentlelady, the ranking member, Ms. Jackson Lee. Uh, and thank the witnesses very much. Just a, a, a slight moment down memory lane, Ms. Goteen. <clears throat> Something called COINTELPRO. I won't ask you to um, get in the weeds, uh, but it was used extensively against Dr. Martin Luther King and the whole um, landscape of civil rights activists and workers to give minimal liberties to African-Americans uh, during the 1950s and 60s. And so here we are again um, with um, what was needed uh, to be able to protect Americans. And I think it's important to indicate that the process was uh, that if there was communication and it was with a foreign operative foreign citizen, the FBI, for Americans, would not be targeting you, not supposed to be, but were targeting that foreign citizen or the communications thereof. How did we mess up so badly? Wow, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, what I would say is that FISA, as enacted in 1978, uh, required the government to obtain an individualized court order 
uh, showing probable cause that the target of surveillance was a foreign power or an agent of foreign power when domestically placing a wiretap to collect communications between even foreign targets and Americans. And that was to safeguard the Americans' constitutional rights that they have in that communication. What Section 702 did is it got rid of that requirement. Um, and it enabled the government to say that as long as it's targeting a foreigner, we don't really have to worry so much about the Americans' constitutional rights. Now, that's not actually what Section 702 says. It says, you're going to pull this in, the American side of the communications, but you should minimize it. You should delete it. You should not share it. Unfortunately, that's not what has happened. So that, that is, and I, because I'm, that's a crux of one of the elements of the problem. Absolutely. There this mountain piles up and no one feels any compulsion, uh, not compelled to say, let me immediately send it into the incinerator, throw it into the trash, get rid of it, shred it, etc. Doesn't happen. Right, and even, even if the FBI comes across Americans' information, it, or other agencies, NSA, CIA, um, that, that doesn't even seem to be a foreign intelligence or an evidence of a crime, uh, they pretty much never get rid of it until it reaches the age off uh, uh, deadline, which is five years. It's five years with a lot of exceptions. So it's five years, or in many cases, much longer. Let me try to, to hone in on what Americans may be impacted by with respect to these cases this pile of information in which an agency has not complied with the guidelines that Congress put in place and or their own policies. To your knowledge, is the evidence find, or has the evidence found its way, found in this way, typically excluded in a criminal case? Well, in most criminal cases, the government doesn't give the notice to criminal defendants that is required under FISA. There's been a long pattern of the government evading its notice obligations. And if the defendant doesn't know that FISA has been used, that Section 702 has been used in that defendant's case, there's no way the defendant can raise a challenge, let alone have the evidence excluded. And uh, most likely, the way that the government has been avoiding this notice obligation is through parallel construction, which is a well-documented practice of essentially recreating the evidence using less controversial means. So one of the things that Congress should do uh, if and when it reauthorizes Section 702 is uh, to prohibit parallel construction. If I could quickly speak to Congressman Gates's question, I think the problem with simply letting Section 702 expire is that I will allow you to do so. The chairman's going to give me a little bit more time to be able to answer. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> but if you'll, if you'll go quickly. I'll go very quickly. Um, is that Congress will then lose the opportunity to make necessary reforms to other surveillance authorities and to close gaps that are in those authorities that allow the government to operate without any statutory authority at all. And if Congress merely lets Section 702 expire, the government will, shi will shift its surveillance acti activities to these other methods. So let me quickly um, get from you um, the singular change other than what we just talked about, parallel construction, that we should be looking at. Well, Gentlelady's time's expired, but you may answer that question. If I have any message for you today at all, it's that you cannot just go with one singular change. A warrant requirement for backdoor searches is necessary. It is far from sufficient. There are other reforms that need to be made, not only to Section 702, but also to overseas surveillance that currently happens without any statutory authority, to the practice of purchasing Fourth Amendment protected information from data brokers, uh, and several other reforms that I mentioned in my written testimony. Thank you. I yield back. 
Thank you. I recognize the gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Tiffany. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the subject of this hearing, Mr. Chairman, is fixing FISA, correct? And so, um, with all due respect, Mr. Kiko, I heard the uh, comment you made that was along the lines of that both parties agree. On one of the most sig significant abuses of FISA, we do not have agreement, and that was in regards to one President Donald J. Trump. It was abused, and Mr. Durham highlighted what an abuse it was of FISA, and we have many people, including on this panel, that still will not recognize that. And that is dangerous for the American Republic, because if, if you have a Praetorian Guard that thinks they can take down a president, are we all free? Are we all free? Uh, Mr. Turley. Building off from Mr. Gates's question, so let's say we don't authorize, what will happen? Let's say we didn't, will there be things that fill in the gaps? Do we have existing law? Well, thank you for ask, asking that question because there is a, uh, what economists sometimes call a, a path dependency that can set in with these types of programs that you can't imagine not having 702. I can because 702 and many of the members of this panel can because we were here. Uh, you were in Congress. Uh, I was testifying when 702 was created. So there was a, a, an existence before 702 and Rome did not burn uh, that you have a system that can handle it. Uh, the question is whether Congress feels that these abuses are so serious that you want to use a rule that if you abuse it, you lose it. That is, the, this is not the first time the FBI has come before you and said, oops, you know, we misunderstood the law. Oops, we did millions of improper searches. Oops, we actually violated the privacy of citizens in exactly the way that people said would happen. At some point, Congress has to decide whether 702 was a good uh, path to take. If it decides to reauthorize 702, the solutions are very, very clear. Mr. Turley, um, if the people are not honorable in those agencies, is it even fixable? Well, you know, part of the problem I had with uh, Director Ray's testimony this week is when he talked about FISA, he kept on saying that was that earlier director. Well, the director may have changed, but the people in the FISA system have not. There's been a consistent culture of violations here uh, that go back throughout the history of FISA. And this gets to, again, the sort of premise that was the flaw of FISA of trusting the government to act on good motivations. Uh, and I think that it's repeatedly shown, quite frankly, it cannot be trusted with that level of discretion. Unfortunately, I only got five minutes here. Uh, you want to get a couple more questions, it's Mr. Scheer. Um, so, uh, Mr. Gates once again said, tactically, what should the reforms be? What, what would be one reform that you would say needs to be done if Section 702 is left in place? Turn your mic on. Several of us have come up with a list of reforms in there, and there are about there are over 25 of them. Um, perhaps the most important is the wire the uh, uh, warrant work requirement, the probable cause requirement that we discussed earlier. And if I could could just briefly answer the question that you asked earlier, uh, Congressman, as a as a former White House counsel uh, lawyer, um, the the answer that I would give to your question as to why it would be a mistake just to let Section 702 require, uh, expire is that you then have a statutory vacuum 
which the executive branch loves. If you're a lawyer in the White House or the Justice Department, you're, you're going to ask, the question you're going to ask is, if we do this, will we be violating any law? And if there's no law on point, your inclination is going to be to ask, well, does the president have an inherent authority to do this thing that the intelligence community wants to do? And of course, they tend to read presidential authority broadly. And so if there's, if there's no statute that governs the issue, uh, you're basically going to be opening the door to the White House and Justice Department lawyers to come up with creative So you're concerned rationales. that we'd be ceding authority to the executive? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not their um, role. So um, uh, what if there's... What if there was a penalty of removal of qualified immunity for somebody that abused this? I think that's something that ought to be considered. Okay, um, I got to get one more question in here. Um, Ms. Goitine, I wanna, um, Mr. Turley did a terrific job of anticipating my question. Um, did you hear the testimony of uh, Director Ray? I did not, I was busy preparing for this hearing. <laughs> well, I would just say to you that you were incredibly prepared and we really, uh, really appreciate that. Mr. Chairman, I just wanna say, Thank you for putting together this panel. It's one of the finest that I've been before. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, they have notified votes. They've called them. What we're going to do here, just so everybody knows, is we're going to go to Mr. Nadler for his, his questioning, and then we're going to recess until after the votes, which would mean I would anticipate somewhere between 11.15 and 11.30 we'll be back in this room. Sorry about that interruption. Um, and. With that, Mr. Nadler, please. Thank you. Let me first say that with respect to what Mr. Tiffany said, we may have a disagreement over whether uh, Pfizer was abused in a certain case or not with respect to the former president. That doesn't affect our deliberations now. We all agree that uh, Pfizer has been massively abused and we've got to uh, fix it. Mr. Kike and, and the idea of, quali of eliminating qualified immunity here is a good one. I'd like to eliminate qualified immunity entirely. <laughs> Mr. Keiko, in the three months since this committee last held a hearing on Pfizer, we learned that the FBI conducted unminimized warrantless backdoor searches of campaign donors, George Floyd protesters, and many others. If the FBI sought to search Americans' communications, no matter the reason, they would normally need a warrant under the Fourth Amendment. Could you briefly explain to us why the court has found warrantless searches of the 702 database to be acceptable under the Constitution? Mr. Kiko. I don't think a warrantless search is acceptable under the Constitution. And that's what, that was what was anticipated when the, when the Fourth Amendment was created. No, we, we agree on that. My question is, why, why is the court found warrantless searches of the 702 database to be acceptable under the Constitution? I, I, I haven't looked at that particular question, so I would ask a panel member to... to Anybody answer. else? I, I, Ms. Guaitin? I'd be happy to answer that. The FISA court has found that, that warrantless searches are, are constitutional. The FISA court has essentially said as long as the initial collection was lawful, then you, you apply some kind of lower standard to analyzing the queries rather than treating it as a separate Fourth Amendment event. However, uh, Section 702 has recently um, made its way to the regular federal courts. And I say recently because for many years the government was not providing notice to criminal defendants, so there was no way to raise the issue. But in the past few years, uh, regular federal courts have had a chance to look at this question, and there is a divide 
among those, those courts. You have four district court judges holding that these searches are constitutional, and then you have four appellate court judges uh, expressing serious constitutional concerns. The only federal appellate court to rule directly on this question was a unanimous three-judge panel of the Second Circuit, which held that you do have to treat uh, the query as a separate Fourth Amendment event, subject to its own reasonableness analysis. And the Supreme Court has made clear that warrantless searches are presumptively unreasonable unless they fall within an established exception to the warrant requirements, such as consent or exigent circumstances. The Second Circuit remanded to the district court to conduct that analysis. So the courts, it is far from settled uh, that, these, that these queries are constitutional. And Mr. Ricky, remember, could I just add one thing as well to that, and that is this was a reference to the Hasbarami case in the Second Circuit. I, and I agree with everything that was being said. One of the barriers that we see in federal court is that it, people have been denied standing in order to challenge uh, uh, these okay. issues. Yeah, Ms. Goitine, the number of searches conducted among U.S. person identifiers went from 3.4 million uh, in 2021 to less than 120,000 in 2022. Can you explain what remedial measures the DOJ put in place to reduce the number and whether you consider these changes sufficient to protect Americans from unwanted surveillance? Sure. Uh, the FBI imposed some new training requirements, some new oversight requirements. It changed its data systems in various ways. And these changes resulted in the searches, as you say, going from 3.4 million to 200,000 searches. Now, I would say that one warrantless search of Americans' communications is too many. 200,000? Warrantless searches, that's 500 warrantless searches for our communications every day. That is just a jaw-dropping number. And the fact that the FBI seems proud of that number really tells you how little regard they have for American civil liberties. Um, they have made these changes according to the FBI's own internal study. Uh, Non-compliance has been reduced to 4%. I think there are a lot of reasons to question that number. But even if you accept that number, 4% of 200,000 searches, that's 8,000 searches every year that violate the FBI's own low standard. Thank you, Ms. Goitine. How can FISA be modernized to protect America's communications that are inadvertently acquired through, through Section 702? What would be the impact of such changes on our national security? But how can they be? Right. What should we do, in other words? Right, so I, I think the solution is to require a warrant or a FISA Title I order in order to conduct these queries. And the government has put forward absolutely no evidence and no reason to believe that that would harm our national security. Um, after all this time, the government has managed to come up with uh, three examples of situations where U.S. person queries were useful. Um, the, the government has been very vague about exactly how those queries uh, happened and, or, or were used and how they produced the benefit that the government is claiming. But more importantly, uh, it's, the government has given no reason to think that a warrant requirement or a Title I order requirement would have prevented the queries from occurring. So for example, there's the colonial pipeline ransomware attack. In that case, the queries took place after the attack. So there would be certainly be probable cause to support any query that would return evidence of a crime. And similarly, there were queries uh, to try to identify and protect the gen potential the gentleman's time has expired. Potential victims of assassination plots. And I would argue that surely these potential victims would have consented to a search had the FBI bothered to ask. Thank you. I yield back. Thank, thank you. And again, thank you to the panel. Uh, thanks for indulging us to go vote. And um, we hope everybody votes with me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll be back probably about an hour-ish. And feel free to make yourself comfortable here. Thank you. Who's ready?
Who is ready to see what I have been up to? This is how we are ending today's show. Because it's all a show. You must enjoy the show. So please give me a few minutes while I get this up and running for you. I think you will enjoy this. And this is just a little cut. Obviously, I'm going to make it digestible for TikTok. Who's ready? You ready? I'm ready to show you what we've been busy, busy, busy doing. But first, let me find it. Let me save it. And here we go. All right, guys. Want to see? One thing that I have been always saying for many, many years is follow the money. Well, we're missing about $7 billion, right? What if I told you we found it? What if I told you, here you go, just so you understand, how much power we as people have. Please enjoy this simple piece. Clearly, this is a violation of federal laws. So, does the FBI not know? Does the Pentagon not know where that money went? Of course it does. And we do too. The next shipment leaving the Great Lakes for Ukraine is in the fall. The more you know. We're rolling. All right. All right. Here we go. I'll have it in my handbag recording. All right. I'll see you in a bit. Good luck with Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Three characters. Two female, one Ukrainian but not speaking, another not Ukrainian at all, and a male who is not Ukrainian. And all received the same response. How are they part of the NCUA if they're violating the basics in regards to discrimination due to ethnicity? I just moved to the neighborhood and I wanted to look into opening up a checking account. The national based account is Ukrainian bank. We, we don't open account for Americans. Well, I, um, I can't have Ukrainian citizenship and American. I can only have American. I, I understand. I, I know where that missing money from the Pentagon went. Maybe we should look at the bank that doesn't allow U.S. citizens to obtain products while operating within the United States and a member of the NCUA. Sounds like I should sue because I was discriminated against. But that's not the point. Hey, Christopher Ray, we did your job. We didn't even get paid for it. So that's the stuff I do. I have a lot of footage like that on a lot of things. These are the things that I do. We found the money. Now, I thought, maybe make a viral clip as to where I clearly show their NCUA members and deny American citizens access. And, well, there's paper trail on the money, too.
So there you go. I've been a busy little bee. Busy, busy, busy. Where are all my Russian intel and Ukraine intel experts? Yeah, that's what I thought. But, you know, I don't know shit. I'm just a very good Googler. And I blow smoke, right? Well, I guess it's gimme more, but through Gorilla Radio. On that note, you guys, don't expect people in Congress to fix your problems. You need to fix them yourself. And it's a good thing there's a lot of us out there that are doing just that. And here we go with a, a little mashup from Britney Spears's Blackout album. God bless. I'll see you on Monday. No shelter if you're looking for shade I lick shots at the brutal charade As the polls close like a casket Our truth devoured Silent play in the shadow of power A spectacle monopolized The camera's eyes on choice the sky Put the cast for the mass who burn it For the vultures who